I remember the night, it was like the day after my dad had told us that my mom was leaving. And it was that was a Monday night, Tuesday. We had to go to Faith, where we were going to share the gospel that night. And I remember thinking, I can't, does everybody know, is what, what I asked my dad. And I was thinking about having to go to youth group Wednesday night. And I was like, there's no way. Like every, And I just remember weeping in our hallway and being like, everyone's going to know. This is Joshua S. Porter, and my book, Death to Deconstruction, is out now. You can get a copy from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Pals, wherever it is that you prefer to buy books or audiobooks. And for the next few weeks, I'm wading deeper into the waters of deconstruction by having conversations with people who, like me, have plenty of the great building blocks for a classic deconversion story. Abandonment, misogyny, hypocrisy, racism, doubt, disillusionment, failure. But all of them continue to follow Jesus, and I'm going to ask them why. Later in the series, we'll be hosting a Q&A session. You can submit your questions at joshuasporter.com slash question. Writing a book is hard, but publishing one is harder. Whether or not things go well and I get to write more books is sort of up to you. So if you care about that sort of thing, here's a few ways that you can really help. The first one is just to buy a copy of Death to Deconstruction. That one's obvious. Or you can buy a copy for someone you think might like to read it. There's a free small group study guide on joshuasporter.com. You can host a get-together and have everyone buy a copy. Secondly, you can tell other people about the book and encourage them to buy a copy. You can post about it on your social media outlets or text a friend, bring it up at a dinner party, whatever. Thirdly, leave Death to Deconstruction a good review on amazon.com. Leaving a review is fast, it's free, it's easy, and it goes a long way in supporting the book. Fourth, listen to the Death to Deconstruction podcast and leave it a good review on the Apple Podcast app. Believe it or not, this helps other people find the podcast, which helps other people find the book. You get the picture. And then finally, you can follow my social media accounts for updates on the book, the podcast, speaking engagements, and that kind of thing. Following accounts may not seem like a big deal to you or me, but the industry suits care about that sort of thing. Anyway, those are a few ways that you can help. Buy the book, tell other people about the book, leave a good review on Amazon and the Apple Podcast app, and follow along for more updates. Listen, I understand that there are a lot of things vying for your attention, so I don't take the support lightly. Thank you very much. Today, Bethany Allen is a pastor of spiritual formation and leadership development. But it was a rough road getting here. Florida. Florida. You born in Florida? I was not. Where were you born? I was born in Texas. What? Oh, I knew that. That's too bad. Yeah, just for a few years. I was there. A few years? Yeah, until I was five. Five years in Texas? Yeah. And so do you remember Texas at all? I do. You went from Texas, hotbed of nationalism, and nastiness bad weather (laughs) worse food not worse food and relocated to florida yes and and where well ended up in daytona beach where'd you go first what do you mean well i went to a small little town called dade city on the west coast of florida oh wow for a year and a half i don't know if you know this but florida has a bad reputation in the world right now. it just does here what do you mean in the world i don't know people use Florida has a punchline for jokes about the Florida uh, American. Man. Yeah. The average American is representative or the the Floridian is representative of the average American. I don't know about that. And usually in bad ways. 
I'm giving you the public perception. What, what of is this encouragement? <laughs> <laughs> That's the way people often talk about Florida in this day and age. Do you take personal offense to of Floridian ridicule? Of course. You don't live in Florida anymore. These people don't know. They didn't live the life I lived. They didn't live the good life. You like your Florida experience was good. It was good. (laughs) And you go back to Florida on a regular basis. I really do. I really do. And Georgia, Mm -mm. you've been around in Georgia. You have family in Georgia. I do. The whole southern gamut: Texas, Florida, Georgia, Disgusta, Disgusta. Lived in Alabama. Lived in uh, yeah, and Georgia. Yeah. Now the reason I'm asking all those questions is because you and I have similar upbringing experiences. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same shades of the same kinds of uh, church world. Yeah, there's Christian not a huge culture. spectrum in our area of, right, <laughs> of the yeah. world. In the evangelical experience, the South is the South yep. kind of thing. Yep. I'm sure that there are probably wonderful little expressions of church throughout the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. peppered throughout the South. Uh, I didn't have those personally, nor did I see them. But you and I both had kind of uh, in the stories that we've shared over our many years of friendship. Mm-hmm. We've had, oh, you know what? This was really beautiful about my church experience. Yeah. And then there's all these ugly things, the stereotypical things, the stuff that we had to kind of learn and unlearn yep. as we continue to grow and evolve. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you had them. Yeah. What was your, um, what was your childhood church experience? Yeah. We were Southern Baptist. Like us. Like you. And, um, you know, hymns every week. We were at the church at least three days a week. Three evenings a week, for sure. Um, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Sunday night, night, Wednesday night. And then Tuesday night, we were doing what we called faith, which was we were going out and knocking on, like, doors. Wow. And sharing the gospel. Or going to the mall and doing a survey. So you're acting like Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. Completely like JWs. I mean, we're just out there. And I'm like in sixth grade, knocking on a trailer park door by myself. And the wow. leader's like, we'll just wait in the car. And I'm like, what in the world was going on oh there? <laughs> uh, but yeah, we were there at least three nights a week. And then, you know, yeah, Wednesday night, Wednesday night supper. That's what we called it. And then mm-hmm. you had GAs. Well, ours was called family night. GAs. Yeah, GAs, we had RAs had and RAs. GAs. Yep. So we were doing mission stuff. That was it. I mean, I was there in choir every youth group thing that could possibly parents are involved parents deeply involved my dad's a pastor and my mom was a pastor's wife so that's like a you know big deal and the church was kind of large that we grew up in you know in its peak it was like three thousand people so for daytona beach aside from nascar that's like a pretty big church yeah pretty big church so that was it and uh but it was good you know like my church experience i mean it was genuine the the best thing about what i saw was that these were real people who had lived real lives and believed in Jesus authentically, you know. There was a lot of other bullcrap around the teachings and the ways we did things or the things that were taught around Jesus, but... Like sending a 16-year-old to knock on trailer park doors? 16, I was 12. <laughs> sending a 12-year-old. <laughs> let's, let's get the ages accurate. Yeah, like weird stuff like that. And, you know, for me at least, I saw it come from a really authentic place. And these are people who are honest about their lives. You know, Daytona's not like the wheelhouse of like wealthy yeah what do you mean by sophisticated <laughs> like comfortable royalty. in their socioeconomic status and all that yeah it's a blue collar town with people who have lived hard lives like most of my mentors were honest about you know their journey sexually honest about their journey and their marriage journey honest about like their wrestle with jesus and 
that and they spoke honestly about it because they had they had bumped up against so much of the hard knocks of life that they were convinced that either Jesus was going to be everything in their life or he was going to be nothing. And like those are the people that I feel like God surrounded me with. So, you know, the the stereotype and this is for me was uh, the unfortunate reality of church culture in Southeast Georgia. The stereotype is that Southern Christianity often takes on this kind of uh, country club Mm -hmm. social obligation and that, you know, we like the aspects of Jesus and the Bible that complement what we're already doing and reinforce the traditionalism of Southern upbringing. But we don't really want to talk about or broach topics that make us in any way uncomfortable Whatever's bad is out there in the world and whatever's good is in here behind closed doors. But you're describing a kind of vulnerable authenticity that sounds really different than my experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're saying like there's a country club ethos to that culture, of course, like in the in the atmosphere, those things existed in the context that I was in. But there was this thread of people that for me was like an anchor point amidst all of that, amidst all of the the things that are really unhelpful and unnecessary, I right. think, in following Jesus. Well, if it's a big old church, there's stands to reason you're running a pretty wide spectrum of people yeah. who are bought in and barely yeah. there. Yeah. There, but barely there. Yeah. And I guess I imagine, even as I'm talking about it, like I didn't come face to face with those people in that way and understanding that they were more more than just this kind of country club experience until our world kind of fell apart. So I I actually, I mean, it was a huge chunk. Half of my life was more of the country club comfort ethos. And then when things got hard. And how did things get hard? Yeah. I mean, you know the story. I do. I've said it a few times to some people. (laughs) Um, But... When I was 14, my mom up and left our family. And it. Um, a pastor's wife. Pastor's wife at a mega church. Mm-hmm. Where you. Hyper conservative. Like, was your family really forward in the church because yeah. your dad's a pastor? So everyone knows who you are, who your mom is. Yeah. You know, we did like living Christmas trees and. Oh, man, I yeah. Love you that know thing. what I'm talking about. I love that freaking singing Christmas tree. <laughs> we did, uh, you know, passion plays. And mom was kind of at the center of those things because she was a performer. So like, and mom and dad were equally involved in leadership and discipleship of a ton of people in the church. So this was a big moment. You know, it's, it's easy to say like she left and that was it. You know, I think there was a slow fade from my mom from the time I was like 11 till I was 14. Like she was beginning to disappear in slower ways, but um, she was gone and out of the house at 14. And then we didn't have contact with her again until for seven years. So until I was 21. So that that was a massive disruption yeah, in our lives. Eclipsing much of the formative time of your adolescence and early adulthood. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, too, like it was just kind of a and this is how it works sometimes. I don't know why it's like this, but it just was one thing on top of the other. You know, it wasn't just my mom leaving. My sister also has Crohn's disease and got really, really sick at the same time. And that was like all dovetailing into this moment where my dad needed to step down from the church because of what was happening. And it was kind of this just whirlwind of brokenness and dysfunction all all landing at the same time. And that was like rip you open kind of moment. You know, all, everything I had known, everything I had understood about my life up until that point was in question. 
you know, because everything was upside down. Was did did you feel? I'm sure that you know, if I were to ask your dad, he'd have a unique answer to this. But did you feel even that young, and as you continued to you know be, grow without your mom there, that there was a, a an embarrassing or almost shameful quality to be like, what the heck? We were supposed to be mm-hmm. you know one of the first families of whatever Daytona Baptist, <laughs> first or, Baptist Daytona. Or, first, well, I was pretty you, close. You know, it was the first Baptist. Yeah, first Baptist of Daytona. And you're the ones going through this embarrassingly tragic and and marked by someone's, you know, quote unquote, moral failure, not just someone got sick or someone's terminally ill. And now we're the ones because that brings sympathizers in a unique way. You didn't do anything wrong, but you're the ones who had the mom who left. Did you experience like, well, this is embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing you're pointing out is like there's a level of vulnerability that in this case felt like exposure. It felt like exposure of all the things that were wrong with us, you know? And I think it it was a for sure a moment of humiliation. And not even and that was what was so confusing because I was like these are my mom especially is not a timid personality, is a strong personality. I saw her leading and discipling and discipling us as our kids. And I mean, I can psychologically trace it back now after years and years and years and years of therapy, but, and, you know, in through dialogue with her, but I think at the time it was like, are we liars? Like, and are you a liar? And by association, I'm a liar and I am now, you know, I mean, this was the early, I guess it was early 2000s and coming from a divorced family in that context was like nobody I didn't know anyone except for my secular friends at school whose parents were divorced so I mean letter for sure nobody in our context had that kind of experience so that even felt like I remember it was so weird but this is what a 14 year old thinks about I remember the night it was like the day after my dad had told us that my mom was leaving and it was that was a Monday night Tuesday we had to go to faith where we were going to share the gospel that night and I remember thinking I can't does everybody know is what what I asked my dad and I was thinking about having to go to youth group Wednesday night and I was like there's no way like every and I just remember weeping in our hallway and being like everyone's gonna know and my dad's like nobody knows you know like and it wasn't like he was trying to make it better but he was just like uh, it was just all over me I remember that was the feeling of panic not I wasn't even free to think about like what does this mean that mom's not here? I was more worried about the perception of other people. So it just talk about complex and layered, especially in hindsight. Yeah. How the heck are you supposed to feel? What are you thinking? Yeah. And it just was taboo. So taboo and scandalous in many ways. And at that point, especially in our context, and you would appreciate this from yours, like there's no in history. And you even know this, even as a younger person, not a lot of grace for people like that. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of grace for situations like that. This is like, y'all are really, y'all must be really broken. And so move on. You yeah, know, that was, and so that's what I was anticipating in many ways too. Your mom's brokenness, either consciously or subconsciously spills out over onto you guys in the perception of the wider church. Right. That's like, well, she's the one who did all the leaving, but for some reason her failure is ours yeah you take responsibility for it in the same way yeah there's a couple things i wanted to ask you about it one i i remember you saying something about this years ago and correct me if i'm wrong but i remember you telling me that there was a group of i i think i want to say that you specifically said women 
who came alongside you during that time and became almost like surrogate or spiritual mothers Mm -hmm. for you. And I remember you using that story as um, a way of describing one of your first times of realizing the, the need for uh, what we would call in, you know, theology, like community or the Mm -hmm. church circle or the ways that the church can be beautiful and work was that, Mm-hmm. women stepped up am i getting am i yeah describing that accurately Doing a great job honestly you could tell the story yeah. i think yeah. you've got it <laughs> you've got it in you yeah i mean i think you know that's the that's one of the turning points or the i look at it now as like a massive anchor for me in my faith and my trust in jesus was when i felt like you know the great anticipation of the great swell that we were anticipating was this massive sense of rejection which obviously i'd already been experiencing rejection from my mom even for the last few years. Yeah. So this was just insult to injury. And when I felt like the wave was about to crash, it was the complete opposite. So even our lead pastor, who was this huge deal in the Southern Baptist world and all this stuff was like, you're staying here because this is your home. And that's what he said to my dad, which is like a huge deal. It was so counterintuitive. My dad was like, what? And that's what, that was the beginning of our trajectory of making us stay. And then I almost immediately, as soon as it became public knowledge, um, that that this had happened and dad was stepping down. It was like a host. It was like a solid seven to 10 women who if I ever write a book, they're all getting their names in the book, you know, like who just came to me and said, life is sucky. And this was like that authentic thing that I was speaking to earlier. These were women who I'm a 14 year old, totally annihilated, feeling like the one person in the world who's supposed to love me doesn't. And all this humiliation about our life changing 180 like this is not who we are we help people like us you know like so different and yet these women rallied showed up in my life I mean shoved themselves into my life they're that kind of like I've said this before too but steel magnolia is kind of aggressive women and they just said look life's gonna be hard and right now our job is to help you make the decision to believe God for his goodness and his coming goodness which we've seen we've walked through hell they shared of in a significant way about their own brokenness, the brokenness they experienced through abortion and rape and other things that are really significant that like actually have credibility. And they said, life's hard, but there's life on the other side and we're going to walk with you all the way through. And sure shooting, they did. Every freaking layer from buying bras to prom dresses to teaching me how to study the scriptures and actually understand it in a way that made sense to nights of weeping in their homes um in a million ways they showed up and showed me something that i always knew about god but needed in that season to experience in a tangible way because i couldn't have made sense of it otherwise and that that's what you're saying about the body of christ like that's actually what it was supposed to be and that changed everything for me including like my vocational path what I wanted to give my life to. Cause if that was the kingdom that Jesus talked about, then I was in. Yeah. Why assign unique meaning to this group of seven or so women, as opposed to what I'm assuming and correct me if I'm wrong, must've been uh, a concurrent group of people that were not those people the you know like i'm assuming that there were people in the church that you heard whispers or murmurings that people said mm-hmm. this or that thing or that people um failed your family yeah. in really Withdrew. significant ways yeah. yeah people that you thought should have been there mm-hmm. weren't there mm-hmm. um 
what you're experiencing that at the same time? Yeah, I mean, not, um, you know, I was 14. So they're not engaging me the same way that they've been engaging my dad, you know, in that space or my grandmother who actually my mom's mom, who was a huge part of the church at the time, too. So there's like layers here to this. Um, but yeah, I think I think it was mostly. Yeah, there's this there is a group of people in that world that exists that had lots of opinions yeah. about what was going on, you know, and, and this isn't to it really isn't to criticize anyone, but most of the staff wives, most of the staff like didn't have a lot to say to us, you know, like that's not I mean, there's a few staff members who really came around our family too significantly so who fought for us and loved us, but it's a large staff and in my experience like that they just weren't present, you know, it's just it's a polarizing thing when something like that happens. And I think I can think of the families you're talking about who just kind of withdrew. And I could tell on the periphery, we're like, Ooh, you know, just yeah. a little bit like, well, there must've been, you know, Damaged the assumption goods. is like, there's something going on or yeah, I always felt like a charity. I became charity, you know, or we became charity and we really were. <laughs> I mean, that was really what happened. We, we became that in many ways, financially and otherwise. So it's true, but I do think, yeah, that existed within that, that cloud. But just like anything about God's goodness, like it does trump the the darkness because it's the truest thing, you know. So even when I felt that from these other people, even when, and I still, there's residual, like even me talking about it right now, I'm like, whoa, I feel that in my body. I can feel the humiliation of that and how it marked me so significantly and how I show up in the world. But what remains or what was truer still was what these people did in speaking what was true, which is why it was so significant. You know, it was almost like light against the backdrop of a lot of darkness. Yeah, why do you think that is? Why do you think that you are here now, just a few years later, still young? And yeah, thank you. <laughs> vibrant. Vibrant. Yeah. Skin is tight. Skin is no plastic surgery necessary, <laughs> no Botox. Just becoming increasingly mainstream and popular. I don't know if you knew that. Botox? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it just really right is readily accessible. Everywhere. Yeah. I know. It's like getting your teeth. It's at the nail salon, basically. <laughs> it's like, do you want to get a little Why do you think it is that so many people have stories that are not like yours necessarily in the specific sense, but comparable in the way that they went through some kind of horrible ordeal that wasn't their fault and that they went through it anchored in a church setting or a Christian kind of cultural um, backdrop against the Christian cultural backdrop. And, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking from my own experience too. It took me, I think a long time to um, come out of the bad experiences that I had growing up in with church and with other um, quasi Christians to be able to say without any kind of anger or resentment that, Oh yeah, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't so great, but mm -hmm. you know, there was this. And there was this. And, and now I can see that those things were actually formative for me, even in spite of this whirlwind of bad things. But I've heard you tell this story a lot of, a lot of times. Yeah. In our, in our, Sorry about just that. Just because we've known each other so long. Yeah. You don't really tell that. It's a little bit like Phoebe Buffay and, uh, <laughs> and the dead mother. I'm definitely not Phoebe in the lineup, <laughs> though. Come on. Oh, you want to be? You don't think that Phoebe has a I, commanding enough presence on the cast of Friends? I don't know. I just want a little bit more sex appeal, like Jennifer Aniston. You, you know what you're I mean? Rachel. Yeah. yeah. I okay. mean, come on. Well, her parents got a divorce, and that yeah. was hard for her. Okay. So there you go. So anyway, anyway like Phoebe. I've heard you tell this story, yeah. and when you tell the story, um, you usually have always been very candid 
and honest about it. Uh, but I noticed even very early on the first time I heard it. And that's why I remember you telling the story about those women, which, uh, was one of the first times I heard you tell the story in general is that you gravitate toward, um, the redemptive aspects of the story. And I've heard you do that, you know, on a stage in a, in a venue, in venues and formats in which that's what's expected to happen. You know, mm-hmm. you're telling a sermon, you're not going to end on a minor yeah. chord, so to speak. <laughs> But, uh, you know, behind closed doors, you're usually very brutally honest and (laughs) and you're also honest in your teaching, but in a way that, you know, wouldn't necessarily translate to an uplifting sermon per se. Yeah. And still you usually gravitate toward the redemptive aspect of, wow, man, this is when the church succeeded rather than when the church failed. And, but I also know from the peripheral details that the church did fail in many ways throughout that story. And by the church, I mean people that were surrounding you, there were people who didn't come through or that judged you or wh- or whatever, that were hypocritical, that were phony, all the same complaints. So why, did it, why is it that you think that you have this story that's probably similar to someone else's story, and whereas these other people are telling a story where they're going, this is when the church mm-hmm. blew it for me, even though maybe they had those seven women yeah. in their lives or whatever it was for them, but the background cast, this cacophony of, you know, like the brood of vipers hissing in the background for them comes forward. What was it about that time and the years? Was that something that happened in the midst of it or it took you years to get that insight and clarity? Or did you feel that then? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a great question. I think that. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. hope you're getting paid the big bucks for this. <laughs> um, you know, I think. The first thing that comes to my mind is that, you know, I I came to know Jesus, I think, in a very real way at a young age. Like, I think what I saw in my parents was real, like their love for him and what they taught us about him. I think that was all true. And I think I experienced God, whatever that means, like as a young person, like I remember loving Jesus and whatever, you know, all the, the ways that a kid understands that from a young age. And what I knew about him from my parents and from the church, um, I think I think why I have this disposition or I've had this disposition when my when life at that point imploded and imploded in the church and connected to every element of yeah, who God is, scale. like yeah, because there's a lot to say about the process, especially post all of this or within all of this. But I think what I saw in those women confirmed at a deep level, what I had always known about God. And so I think like why I was able, I think even in the midst of it, and I was a mess. Like I was like, I can, it sounds so clean now because it was 20 years ago, but, um, but I was a mess. I had a lot of questions about God and myself. And I still, I was just telling you how I have narratives that are alive in me right now from this moment in my life that are detrimental, that are harmful to me. Um, but I think the strong staying power, the the strong like shift for me was everything I'd known about Jesus became true and even more true, even in my worst moment amidst these people who I was like, I recognize him and it must be true if someone can love me at my worst or in my darkest moment this way then he must be who people have said he is. So I think that's partly why, like, you know, in these some of these stories, and we're pastors, so we hear this stuff 
all the time. Some of the most vile things I've ever heard in my life have happened to people. I know, I know how evil the world can be. Um, but I think one thing you can't shake is an actual encounter with God. And I think for me, um, in the midst of that moment and a thousand other moments that followed it, it just rang true that this was, this person was true. And if he was true, then everything else could, then I would be okay. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that I would be okay. And I don't know, for me, it was like, he's the right thing. Everything else is the wrong thing. And so the shift in thinking wasn't, I'm just looking at all my circumstances and going, isn't the world evil? It was, I can be okay in the midst of evil. So was, do you think, earlier you mentioned that um, there was that moment where you asked questions like, uh, was the, is this a lie? Am I a liar? Are we liars? Your mom had mm-hmm. been one of the people who was giving you yeah. information about Jesus and I'm presumably holding you to a standard mm-hmm. of um, yep. based on the teachings of Jesus and the expectations of the church. And uh, how did you avoid the, or did you have the, you know, what people often presume is the, I know you have opinions about Santa Claus, but the Santa Claus oh, conundrum boy. Is, you know, they're like, oh, well, if you participate in the mythos of Santa Claus as a family, will there come a moment when your children um, uncover the reality of the Santa Claus legend and ask themselves, well, are my parents trustworthy? Because they spent years telling me this thing that turned out to be a bold face um, lie. I don't know if we have you on this. I know. (laughs) Blowing things up for some people. It wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. How about that? But you said you had this experience and now you're asking questions. Well, dang, are we liars? And in your mom in this, at this point in the story is the one who had the most egregious violation to you personally. All the other people are peripheral people in Mm -hmm. the story. They're participating in the bad thing that happened if they did. And she's one of the main people telling you about Jesus. Was there ever a sense of like, well, screw this. If that was her thing, I don't want to do it. Or was there a sense of like, if this was her thing, she has proof, proven herself to be a liar, so therefore this is no longer true. Was that something that you flirted with or something that occurred to you? Yeah, of course. Yes. I think the first, my first thought was, you're a liar. Like, to my mom. I mean, if we're being honest, it was like, you are not who I thought you were. Obviously, that's like one of the first thoughts. And I think, too, like... um, it was, I think that was probably one of the first things I wrestled with aside from the humiliation when I was like actually beginning to think about what was happening in real time. Um, and yet really early on somehow, and I don't know if it was my father's integrity. And I mean that, like, I don't know, my dad is just full of integrity. I don't know if it was the counterbalance of that or whatever, but what I began to think was either the God she followed is not the God I know just based on the experience I was having or she's so unwell um, that she can't, you know, that she can't experience him. And it's weird to think about, and I don't know how this happened. Like I wish I could be more textbook, but in the midst of things falling apart and really feeling like, you know, and I remember saying to her, like you said, you would never get a divorce. You said, like, I remember saying back to her the things that she had said in the name of Jesus or Christianity or whatever. Um, 
I remember just thinking like, but you, you know, the Christianity I received or the message of Jesus I received from my parents was not a promise of everything being okay. And I don't know how to explain it, but when all that came down, one of my first thoughts was like, I was never promised a mother, but I was promised Jesus. Like I wasn't promised these things. And the the gospel they taught me included that. You know, they you had they, a paradigm for suffering and even at a yeah, young I don't age. know how. Like I, I really don't know how, but I just remember thinking like if all to Jesus I surrender was the song we Which were is singing the hymn that we sang week after listeners. week after week at every invitation or whatever at the end of the service. Um I just remember thinking like all of it. All my worldly things, including the relationships that I should in theory be guaranteed or whatever. It wasn't, that wasn't promised. So I don't know, early on, I reckon somehow miraculously reconciled that. And I don't think it's because I'm overtly spiritual. I think it's because, I don't know, I had seen that play out, even my parents, in my parents' suffering in their own lives, you know. So I wish I had a better answer that was more No, you're saying that you had, a, but you had a broad um, and kind of taking taking it for granted that there is a certain dimension of crappiness to the world or brokenness to the world that that wasn't that aspect of it didn't surprise you to the degree that your whole faith had to crumble. Yeah. I mean, I think it even like weird stuff, like I remember, remember like memorizing scriptures of like in this world, you will have trouble. Yeah, like even that. as a little person where it's like, Oh crap. You know? So like when that happened, it was like, I mean, I guess that's what this is, you know? And it, again, it can sound so, I can sound so, this can sound trite or I can, but it's not. And in the moment, it didn't feel that way. It wasn't just like an easy wrestle. But once I screamed at God, once I moved through my anger at my mother and the sense of betrayal and disappointment and loss and all of that, I, I somehow arrived at some conclusion that said that wasn't guaranteed. Wow. But he was. And then you take that with you. You manage to not only survive this experience uh, with your faith intact, but you remained part of that church, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah till I graduated. Yeah, and I think like I would want to say like my faith intact, my faith completely disrupted. All the questions that you would ask in that situation I was asking. The thing is, I just, I just, there was even someone just recently said this to me. You got to stay in the room even when you're mad. You know, like you got to stay in the room even when you feel devastated. Like you can you can tell Jesus you don't believe him. You don't trust him. He hasn't been good. He hasn't been faithful to you. You feel betrayed. You feel whatever. But just stay in the freaking room. And I think my experience even throughout that season was staying in the room. I just I made a commitment that like either he I was going to wrestle with him and he was either going to show himself to be not who he said he was or he was going to be who he said he was. And that was my high school experience. And I had a really brilliant experience, you know, really tough. We were financially really strained and I was working and my brother was working and my dad was working. We were just trying to make ends meet. We were without quite a bit. And I didn't have my mom at any of these really significant moments that really mattered. So like all of that was layered in there. And yet there were people like these women and other people who served us really well and cared for us really well. And the faith that I came out with on the other side, at least of my high school experience, was tested. Yeah, you know, it was like, it wasn't like 
So it wasn't like, yeah, so like I just believed God the whole time. Like I just can't stand people who talk like that. I just fought with God for four years and just stayed in the room. And I think that's what came out of that season. And I saw the goodness of God, just not in the way I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's often one of the bigger misconceptions about the Christian experience of what we say and kind of a, uh, I want to, you know, overused language might be something like wrestling with God or um, doubt is kind of a junk drawer term we use, but even Christian experiences of despair and uh, extreme suffering, um, massive doubts about not just the existence of God. I mean, that's something that anybody at any point can Mm -hmm. at least have enter their minds, but doubts about the goodness of God and the legitimacy of their worldview as a whole. Um, There's this idea that, oh, yeah, okay, questions are good, questions are fine, and that's we've made strides as, you know, in Christian culture, encouraging people to ask questions and Mm -hmm. learn stuff. But there is a dark shadow that we dare not enter um, because we're afraid it it makes us sound uh, less Christian or that it'll somehow contaminate people who hear it. You know, when Mother Teresa died, her journals were published. Nobody wanted, she didn't want them published. They published them anyway. And she had this really long horrifying season of writing these terrible sounding things in her journal like Mm -hmm. where the heck is God and I don't I don't feel anything and Mm -hmm. I'm not excited about what I'm doing and um, she says things like heaven holds no joy for me and and then would end these letters with like pray for me that I continue to seek his face in spite of everything and people like oh okay so she was a fraud so Mm. she was never really a Christian and that was kind of the narrative that emerged from the exposure of those letters wow she was privately a fake the entire time I was like these are the most Christian sounding letters that I have ever read right Um, so you're saying that to say oh you made it with your faith intact is is too reductive Mm -hmm. in that it was ruptured and scrambled and you had had to do all that screaming and fighting and despairing and suffering and that you somehow did it participating in the family of God's people. You stayed yeah. at the church. You yeah. did the outward things like go to church, but you did the inward things like you insisted on somehow that thread of hope that yeah. occurred to you through the whole thing. Yeah. And I think like, you know, I didn't show up to church the same way I showed up to church prior to what happened. Like that's part of it is the, I showed up to church in the honest way. I think sometimes that's the weird thing that happens to people is they go like, oh, well, I have to show up the way I have showed up in order to make this work or to be what I need to be in the church or whatever. And I just, just with the disclaimer, just want to say like, I didn't show up the same way. When I was like broken, I just was broken. And it wasn't that I was going to church because I was like, I love it. It's my refuge. Like, you know, I know people who that, and sometimes it was, but I showed up to church because I'm like, I am in, all I know is that I am in proximity to the presence of God through other people. Mm. And I need that. I don't know what it means. I don't know if it'll ever mean something. I still show up to church that way. I'm a pastor. And some weeks I'm like, I'm showing up because you said this is the best thing to do. Is that why you believe in church so much now? Yeah. I mean, I think I believe in church because I've seen it be the kingdom of God. Um, And I've seen it not have to be some religious structure in in the sense of like we're all painting our faces on and going and showing up or whatever i've seen i've been free to show up the same way myself authentically and in that season learned to do so 
in a way that I think honors Jesus, you know, by telling the truth with my life, wherever I'm at, and still saying, you're worthy of my presence here, Lord. Like, you're worthy of this sacrifice of praise, you know, mm-hmm. like, or whatever it is. You can't see her, but she's making air quotes. Yeah, I don't know face. how to translate that. I'm like, should I tap yeah, the, the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that's what it is. And if I actually believe the basics, if I believe he died for my sins and that I get to spend eternity with him, which people can think, I don't know, sounds small, but I'm like, that's pretty good. And that actually does demand all of me. Yeah, the implications no matter how are bad. staggering. Yeah, it's like, well, if I actually think about that and I actually believe that, then showing up to this group of people is a very small sacrifice in the face of the gift that I've been given. So that's, I mean, church in that sense for me, you know, became... It was real. It was an honest journey. And you never didn't go to church. You went to that church. <laughs> right. And you graduated. Mm-hmm. You eventually move out to uh, the Northwest. Eventually, yes. You take pictures of the signs <laughs> on your way in, post them on Facebook. Listen, when you're look- from the South, you're like, <laughs> Seattle. You know, we've only seen it in movies. I was telling, I always tell people this. I was like, where are those Subaru commercials? Like in Florida, I'd be like, wow, those Subaru commercials, they must be another country because the big green mountains. Every I was like, whoa. And then I came out here and I was like, this is where the Subaru this commercials the Subaru are made. Because we just had no paradigm for what life looked like. Anyway, I moved to the Northwest and it's shocking. You moved to the Northwest, culture shock. Wow, here you are. Ugh. Now, this is a point in the story. You go to seminary. I know I'm mm-hmm. totally compressing your biography here. That's but great. You go to seminary. You paid to put yourself through seminary while you're doing it. I do. Right? Yep. You've what was your job during this time? I was an executive assistant at a paper company. At a paper company. Yeah. So you're working and going nine to school. Nine to five. Nine to five. Like Dolly says. How are you doing the nine to five? And were you doing like part-time semesters? I was and doing stuff? school at night. School at night. Yeah. Wow. So this four is a real Aaron Brockovich story. I mean, come on. Just doing the whole thing. Modern day. Modern day. That is somebody who uh, sincere. And you're on your own. This is like your family's back in the <laughs> South. Very much so. You're out here by yourself. Yep. You don't have friends and nope. connections out here. <laughs> it's really what? sad. Side note: Why'd you want to do that? I didn't. I came out here for a boy. Oh, you know what is. I mean. There and then is. I was like, and I did hear God say, "Come to seminary at this place." But I like it was such an Abraham moment where I was like, "Up and leave you, get up and go to the place I tell you to go." And I was like, "Frick, this is not where I want to go. This place was a circus." I mean, yeah. I was like, this this place is a freak show. I do it's not want to come here. It's the antithesis of the culture in which you were raised. Yeah. So, yeah, it was bad. First so now, yeah, you're going to, even though you're at a, you know, this term is a dirty word now, but it, for lack of a better way of saying it, evangelical mm-hmm. seminary in that it's, you know, it's conservative and orthodox and all your, that part of, even if they're challenging you, at least there's familiar shades yeah. of your Christian world there. For sure. You get immediately plugged back into churches in the Northwest, mm-hmm. right? Yep, I do. Yep. Um, but your peripheral world is bananas mm-hmm. because you go from one of the most conservative mm-hmm. fundamentalist right wing leaning <laughs> cultures mm-hmm. to the opposite in every single way progressive liberal left leaning left yep. fundamentalism yep 
out here. And even if you're the most intelligent, open-minded, free-thinking person. Which I wasn't. Which you weren't. (laughs) I was trying to be generous. But even if you were, let's say you were, you can't help but go, oh, that's weird. Because everything in the, you know, the tapestry of your background world has been one thing. Suddenly it's another thing. So you can't help but be like, well, that's weird. Everyone's riding down the street on bicycles naked. Yep. I've never seen that before. Yep. And that's just something that happens here. Yes, it does. So were you like, what the heck? Yeah, I hated it. I want to go home. Every day I wanted to go home. Every day I'd look at plane tickets home. I thought this place <laughs> You is actually looked at plane tickets? Every day. And I remember God <laughs> saying to me, if you get on a plane, you'll have to come right back. Oh, so I was like, Shoot. Oh. that's why I didn't pay for it. It's like five hundred dollars. I was like, I'm poor. I don't have money. Yeah, I hated it for for two years. I think I cried straight every day because I was like, this just this isn't home, and I don't know anybody, and I'm on my own, and I am in a freaky culture to me at the time, and I I felt like God, what am I doing here? Like I, I literally was just like really confused. I didn't feel like I had an answer. Why did you go to seminary? I went to seminary because of that boy, <laughs> in the sense that he had said, the Lord works in yeah. mysterious ways. I mean, at the time, this was the only seminary in the U.S. that had a master's level women's ministry program. And when I was trying to figure That's out depressing. vocationally, I mean, vocationally in our culture, the only thing I could do was women's ministry. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, you and, can help and other women approval. be Christian, but you need to be quiet. In yeah. Front of the men. Right. So I was like, cool, I can do that right here. So I went to this school because I met with this, the creator of the program and I knew God was like, this is someone you need to learn from. And so I came out here to do that program, but I thought for sure God was going to send me back immediately. Like I was like, I'm in Babylon, but I'm going to go back to wherever, yep, Jerusalem. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, I even had like an Ezekiel Bible verse at the beginning of this journey because I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess so I got to get sent back. So I mean, it's so ridiculous now hindsight. But, you know, I was like, I'm out here as a missionary, I guess, to these people. Yeah. <laughs> like, did, it it. did you go knock on people's doors? And I absolutely did not. No, I was terrified. <laughs> and I think like, and I slowly made friends and I got involved at a church or whatever, but it was a slow it was not a, it wasn't great. Mm-hmm. It was bad. So. But you, but you had aspirations to go into ministry. Yeah. The, the family business. Yep. <laughs> yes. So not only that, I just think that that's incredible that not only did you make it through this really remarkable season of your life and you're still a Christian, but you uh, want to be a professional Christian. Yeah. You're going to school to learn how to do it. Yeah. But that wasn't because I was like, like I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> what that was. That I don't know, but I wasn't like, it's what I should do, or like, you know, I have an amazing personality, so people are always like, wow, you could really <laughs> do a lot of things. Anyway, it's not even because of those things, <laughs> you know. I yeah, it's and that sounds so. Anyway, yeah, for sure. But you hear it all the time. You know what it's like. What could you not do? Yeah, I yeah. mean, really, it's like real estate. I'd be making millions, you know. Um, but. Uh, I think like the thing I thought coming out of that season, particularly in high school was if this is the kingdom, what else would I give my life to? And I had seen people love me so well that I thought I want to love people like that. And the on-ramp to doing that was in the church. I could tangibly connect with people who needed to know love like that. And that was genuinely my motivation. It wasn't like, I hope I become Beth Moore, you know, even though yes, of sure, course, yeah. we're all like fantasizing about that. But I wanted to just give my life to the thing that changed my life. So 
So now you're in seminary and, you know, you and I went to the same seminary. It's mm-hmm. not a cakewalk and you get really challenged and pulled yep. and pushed in a million different directions. But you decide you're going to do this thing. Now, here's where the story reaches its apex moment. Then you and I meet. Yeah, right? that's it. That's the <laughs> pinnacle. I meet you. And what I was immediately told was like, oh, yeah, this is this is our friend Bethany. She also went to Western Um and, you know, she's been around and she's been helping out at the church and everything. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why does she go to a seminary to help her help out around the church? <laughs> and then uh, right around the time that you and I became friends, they're like, oh, Bethany's actually going to come work for the church. I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, she's been to seminary and yeah. I mean, half the staff hasn't. So that's pretty impressive. Yep. And, uh, and what they do is put you behind a desk. <laughs> in front of the <laughs> office door so that when bums come in you can say I don't think you can say bums anymore. Can I help you? So that when <laughs> when the riffraff no. from the streets of downtown Portland. No, yeah. these were eccentric individuals <laughs> were. who came in in their underwear or less <laughs> and uh would usually start high on something. High yeah. and screaming about a dragon. <laughs> And <laughs> and it was your responsibility. I don't mean to make light of their situation so much as the incredible nature of the position that was given yeah. you. So where do we put this seminary graduate? <laughs> this woman has a graduate degree in Bible and theology. She can watch the door <laughs> and tell the, uh, uh-huh. the high drug users <laughs> when they come in asking if they can pee on the floor. Oh, no, you, you can't actually pee on the floor, sir. Yeah. I'm going to have to they ask take you. They that right outside the door. Right outside the door. And then they did. They did. <laughs> they did. I worked in this office as, as well. And <laughs> this is one anecdote from that office. A gentleman came. It was kind of a fishbowl office with glass windows all along the front of it. A gentleman comes up to our desk where we're working, slams a small cage against the glass with a hamster in it yeah. and says, $5, $5 for this hamster. <laughs> And immediately through the glass, we all shrug and say, oh, yeah, no, thank you. I don't have immediate need of a gerbil. And he said, I'm going to eat him. <laughs> we didn't realize he was holding this gerbil ransom. He wasn't oh. looking to sell a pet. He was asking for ransom money. Yeah. That yeah. was the kind of environment in which we worked. You were made to watch the door, but you took this gig as well. You said, sure, I'm a seminary graduate and you've got dudes on staff who are not, but I'll watch the door. What would you do that for? Uh, I did that only because God said, take this pathway. I mean, literally only. I tried not to work there. You feel like you heard from God and God was like, I would prefer that you go do this thing that you had specific Uh, direction. I was interviewing with a different church and I was like, that's get me out of here. Get me out of Portland. Get me. I mean, it was like, bless the church we're at. But, you know, the church at the time that I was saying yes to is very different church that I work at now, you know, but mm-hmm. also I was like, no way we were just in, it was a really weird season and I didn't want to do it. And I was also like $15 an hour, you know, like I got to live in Portland, you know, anyway. So I was like, no way, God, like not on this planet. And they asked me multiple times, will you, will you come take this job? Will you come to, and that was because I just had already been ministering to people. I think they just felt like they had no choice, you know? But one night, I really do feel like God pointed at one of the pastors and he said, can you follow him? And I was like, frick. <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. And I just felt like he said, I want I you. Can. I want I'd you. Yeah, not. that's how I felt. And I felt like he said, follow him and take the job. So it was a leap of faith. I thought for sure I'd be here or I'd be at the church for six months. And then I thought, because they had never really hired a woman. 
and I had negotiated that role. So I wasn't, I was the admin, mm-hmm. but I had said like, you know, this was me and my feminist rage. I was like, yeah, also, can I also be the director of women? And I was like, my title just has to be something more. So I, that, then I, be, I was dr- admin, women's director and a hospitality coordinator. So I was three jobs. For fifteen, but I sat at the front, and I mostly did admin work. But yeah, it's not making light of it because the headline, the the visible expression of your job was hilariously (laughs) inappropriate. But I thought it would be like you know, I think when I said when I felt like I heard the Lord clearly, I was like, okay, well, this just must be for something for a short amount of time. Like I just must be sowing some kind of seed, and I I want it to be said in my life that like I really will be obedient no matter what. We all say that crap, so like I better live it because it's true. But that's really why I took it. It wasn't like, I was like, I'm not worth it. I was sort of like, God, I'm really confused. Not because I think I'm a shining diamond, you know, or anything. I wasn't. I didn't have experience. Like, Well, practically, it didn't make a lot of sense. How are you supposed to live on that? And what did you go to school for? Totally. I was living still in seminary house. I mean, you know, you're just kind of like trying to survive it. But I just felt like God was like, take it. So I was like, well, I'll test you in this. And then I guess when I go back to Florida... I'll live in a mansion when I get there, mm-hmm. I guess. So. so I'll do this now, but this pay, this treasure this in heaven better, better be, be on earth. I mean, huge. It better be right. Big. Better be just rolling big time, not a hamster, something else. Yep. You know, so guinea pig at least, if not a chin freaking chilla. <laughs> Honestly. So, so you go and you take the job. Now again, this is uh, at a time and place. The church that you worked at is very different from the church you work at now. Be that as it may. You go through years of um, a mega church conglomerate that had little, if any, paradigm for uh, a woman who is in leadership, let alone a woman who is a pastor. Yeah. That was something that that position didn't exist. Right. At your church. Did you know then that you wanted to be a pastor or was the call more generally like, oh, I want to be in ministry and just in ministry. Yeah. I wasn't thinking I didn't have like some objective or agenda because even, I mean, you gotta, you gotta know, I was thinking I'm not going to work here for more than a year. Right. Yeah. So I was just kind of like, this is just like, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. And I just didn't, you know, in the context we grew up in, in the context I was still experiencing, I was like, that's not a pathway for me. And I think, too, I had had a really gnarly, in some ways, experience in seminary here that made me do a deeper dive into, like, revisiting what does it mean to be a woman in partnership in the kingdom of God and all of that stuff. So I was kind of wrestling with that still, too. What do you too. mean by gnarly? Like, I mean, I felt really, I really did feel, in, in a lot of ways, dishonored. Uh, you know, like, I went to school in a cotton field, basically, in Alabama, and I felt more dignity, honor, respect for my all my male counterparts than I did here in this like liberal city, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most liberal cities in the union or whatever. And it was just shocking, you know, even in my context that I had grown up in the South and this church, Southern Baptist, I was like, men were like, go to seminary, get your degree, like study this, the Bible, like, and, and here it was almost like, what are you doing here? And why would you provoke God this way? Oh, <laughs> I mean, wow. that's kind of how it felt. Wow. Like with some of the men, I just felt like I was, I was an offense to them or something. It was so weird. Um, no, I saw it. I had the oh. occasional, they were rare, but we'd have like, you know, 20 men in a yeah. class and one lady <laughs> and the lady would be 
uh, more qualified and experienced than these dudes. You know, she's like a psychologist who's going back to get a Bible degree yeah. versus this dude who just planted a church in the outskirts of Oregon. And he'd be like, no, that's not it. Yeah. You'd be quiet. Yeah. I just had weird experiences like that where I was just like this. One is not the kingdom of God, period. Two, what the heck is happening? And what's wrong that even my professors carry this mindset and mm. engage in this kind of theology and practice? And I saw, I think, more um, gaps of integrity in these men and the roles that they played and even the theology that they embraced and their actual implementation and ability to live into this thing they said was a conviction for them. So I had been coming, I had come out of that season and was just tattered. I mean, just ripped up by it. Like what in the world is this experience? And then I'm taking this job, God, that doesn't make any sense and feels small, you know? Yeah, and did if, it feel like the semin- all those seminary things were carrying over into now your vocational absolutely. thing? Yeah, and like, I just knew like God is a God of dignity. And I just thought that, I don't know where the dignity is here for me. And, you know, again, and this sounds like really spiritual, but I was like, yeah, but the way of the kingdom is death. So, and not like, you know, not like self-deprecation and like you shouldn't, you know, it's not that, but I knew that this was a costly conscious death I was taking or making or moving into because of what God had asked me to do. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. That's no small thing. Even though you thought it was only for six months at the time. Yeah, I mean, I was like setting timetables because I was like, there's no way this is going on for, you know. And you and I often joke about this and have joked about this for years. But even though, you know, you uh, were already, you already had it, it all figured out when you got here. You yeah. know, theology was super solid. And totally. Nothing weird or. Easy breezy. Didn't bring any of that Daytona stuff with you. Uh-uh. Yeah. But you come out here and this is something that I, I am hoping that I can help more and people understand or facilitate a better understanding of is that when I say something like deconstruction, I'm talking about, you know, you tear down the thing that you were given in your upbringing or that you accepted at one point so that you can either one dispense with it forever or two make up your own thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That is not the transformation of faith that every decide because the critics of, you know, (laughs) faithfulness, I think will say that, well, you just have to stay marred in these uh, patterns of unhealthy, unhelpful thinking, bad, bad theology and bad paradigms of God as if what you were handed in Daytona has not shifted or evolved in any way in your adult life. Right. And the only other option is just to clobber it to death right. and make up your own new thing. So you, I, I even remember, because you and I, um, you you went to and finished seminary before me and then I was doing school and uh and we were both kind of uh, in different ways, but in similar-esque seasons, kind of reconfiguring what we thought and what our theology would be. And <laughs> they often would uh, bump up against <laughs> each other. They would collide in a way that was argumentative or painful. And I'd be like, how the heck can you think this? And you'd be like, well, how the heck can you think this? You know? Yeah. And, uh, and now we agree on everything. Yeah. That, may, may, that makes it easy. But really easy. But you went through, inevitably, like anyone who continues to follow Jesus, a tran- transformation period in which you're realizing like, oh, okay, I always thought this. I don't think that that's true anymore. 
but you're doing it, it to use your language in the room mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm stepping out of the room and I don't even know if I'll come back in. But if I do, it'll be after I mm-hmm. dismantle everything. Um, but you've not only gone through this childhood traumatic, you know, tragic lifetime movie scenario. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it has all the components <laughs> of a really like, uh, you know, you could get it'd be like I imagine it in the same stylistic delivery of. Uh, what's that movie where Natalie Portman lives in Walmart? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Someone's so mad that I can't remember the name of it. I can't think of it either. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. though, right? Oh, it has yeah. a generic name. She li- She's pregnant teenager mm-hmm. and lives in Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's how I imagine it aesthetically. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never seen it through that lens, but like, <laughs> I need to rethink this. You've been through a lot, is yeah. my point. You've been yeah. through a lot. You come out here, and now you're going through a lot in a different way. Yeah. And you're doing it by yourself in yeah. a lot of ways. You know, even though you're building a new community around yourself and you have friends and, you know, big J's in your life. So, yeah. wow, this, you know, things are really Showbreds working out. in my life. <laughs> things are really Ooh. on the up and up. Yeah. But still, you're going through that often painful, transformative period. Yeah. Why do you think it is that you stayed what we would call orthodox? Meaning, why didn't you just say, God, I mean, these people are so misogynist, which was your experience. Yes. Uh, So do I really need their version of Christianity or these, you know, this, these people have no paradigm for this or this thing or what made, and now you're surrounded by the wallpaper of the Portland metro area and you're seeing, I'm again, assuming, but no, I know because we worked at the same megachurch conglomerate, but you're seeing a lot of uh, corruption. And by that, I mean, not to throw people under the bus, but any place you have lots of people yeah. working together, there's going to be backward stuff going on, corruption. And, you know, you and I have for years commiserated about like, what the heck, this thing was messed up. And can you believe this thing happened? And can you believe this person did this thing and that they did it to us or that kind of, so you're having to go through all that and did it ever cross your mind that you would reinvent your spirituality in a way that suited you and that you could kind of bail out of either this mega church world that has kind of seems like it's been your story most of your life. You've always been a part of big churches Mm -hmm. where you have the bigger the church, the bigger the potential for there to be crappy stuff going on, more people, more crap. And you know, you're being treated in a way that you're experiencing injustice and uh, and you're carrying your experiences from childhood, regardless of how much counseling and therapy you've been through to experience healing and growth. Did it occur to you that, you know, like, yeah, well, I think I can just do my own version of this and I'd be a lot happier. Mm-hmm. No, no, it didn't. And here's why I think, you know, everything you're talking about centers around everyone else and not around Jesus. And I think, I think for me, the he was the greater influence. Like, it wasn't Jesus who failed me. It would be people who were disappointing and broken. And I don't know why I would have the assumption they had it all together. They weren't him. You know, so I think, like, the reason I wasn't leaving the room and the, re- the reason I wasn't going, let me rethink it on my terms, was because... The injury wasn't coming from Jesus. The instability or the unfaithfulness or the things that he said were true stayed true. He wasn't the untrustworthy one. Other people were. If I make other people the center of my world, no matter who I am or what religion I practice or what, you're screwed. 
people suck. Like it's not, we're all, and I mean that we're broken. I don't mean that as like, sorry, someone's in their car like, wow. <laughs> it's true. Um, you specifically in your yeah. car, you suck. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like to me, of course, I mean, the premise of any faith is that you'd bank it on something greater than you. You don't have faith if you're banking it on other people and you're qualifying your faith by the works of the people around you. Your emphasis and your gaze is set to the wrong place. So for me, I think I was like, yeah, people are going to fail me. In fact, Jesus said that a million times. If you look at his disciples, you're like, I mean, any like flannel board story is like, yeah, and the disciples were real ding dongs. Like, and then, but Jesus was a nice guy and he was still compassionate, even though they were ding dongs. So like, I don't know. So there was something about that that is just twofold for me. It's like one, Jesus was the one I was looking at and he hadn't failed me yet. And I don't mean that as like a song, like someone cute, you know, what's his name? Mm-hmm. Yep, here it comes. Chris Tomlin or whatever. I just think like he hadn't failed me. And, and because on my worst nights where I'm screaming in my bed at him, weeping over the pain that I was experiencing through the brokenness of people in my life, including my mother and other people, at the end of my weeping, he was right there in some kind of way that made sense to me. And he brought me peace and it was enough just because I didn't have the bounty or the, the you know, the de- I, that I didn't define the, the results like didn't mean it wasn't goodness. And if you're ever that really desperate and you're willing to get in God's presence that much, he will it will be sufficient. So I had learned that and I keep learning that. And even though people had failed me, it was never about them. And I think the other side of that, too, is um if I can be totally honest, like, and you're like really brilliant and I'm smart, but I'm not, you, mm-hmm. you're like yeah, a different, for, for oh, sure. yeah, we have this neat. conversation a lot. This is not the first time we've had this. No, no, it's all true. Back yeah, and forth. But I just say like, you know, one of the things that I'm painfully aware of or have been is that, or, or that I just, I don't know why I think this way, but I definitely don't think I, in my perspective, even based on the amount of ding-dongs I'm having broken relationships with, I don't know why I would ever assume that my perspective was the best one or that I could singularly redefine goodness because I had already known my brokenness. Even even at the expense of other people, even at the injury of other people, I had known my brokenness enough to be like, <laughs> my percepti- perception from 14 to 21 was really different. What I would have said at 14 is really different than what I would have said at 21 about who God was and what he did. From 21 to 31, it was really different. You know, like... It was so evolving that I can't imagine, I couldn't have imagined taking a moment, even when life was really crappy, in assuming that I could have some solution that was greater than the hundreds of years, thousands of years of history. This this thing, this thread that had lasted for centuries, that I would somehow know better and have a, a way that would be more true or more accurate. So... Is that why you stayed in the room, even though staying in the room necessitated that you stay in the room with the crappy people? Yeah, because I think you're like, okay, like here's, I mean, sometimes you have to go, I did, I don't know what you have to do. Sometimes you have to just say to yourself, look, you don't know more than hundreds and hundreds of that, you know, like one, a basquillion people who have said yes to this Jesus and have had their lives radically transformed. And I don't know more than the church fathers and mothers, and I don't know more than the apostles, and I don't know more than all these people. And so today the staying power is that I can say, I don't know more. And so by faith, I just stand here and let history, let this truth of history carry me forward to the next day or whatever. Like some days it was just like that. And other days it was like, 
yeah, people are, people are failing, but Jesus isn't. And I am in the room with them, but he's here. So it's all right. Like, I mean, this, this guy is making me feel so small and belittled and undignified. But if I really listen, there's another voice saying to me who I really am. And I don't know, you, it's the dance of learning that that's this trajectory. But I think those two things, like one, I just don't assume that I know better. I just know it because I'm, I know what kind of ding dong I am. I'm in the room with other people too. They're like, God, Bethany's here, you know, like, and he is the thing, not people. And if he's really the thing, and I feel like he said to me, test me, me, not other people, me, and he can handle it. And he has been able to, I've seen him. I've known, I know him, not known him. I, I do know him to be faithful that way. And the name of the movie, I didn't look it up, was Where the Heart Is. Okay. Yeah, that that's it. Yeah, that's good. Death to Deconstruction by Joshua S. Porter is out now. Next week on the Death to Deconstruction podcast, I'll be talking to my friend Hakeem Bradley about his journey from a black identity cult to a pastor and a Bible scholar. Like growing up in Philly, I, I was raised in like... I think we talked about this, like mm-hmm. a black identity cult called the 5% Nation. And I understood the scriptures to be a bunch of old texts that would be kind of like a moral compass of how you should live, but also was used as a weapon to like oppress peoples throughout, you know, millennia. And I'm like, I don't know if I want any part in that. If you wouldn't mind seeing this whole author thing continue for me, here's how you can help. You can buy the book, tell other people about it, Leave a good review on Amazon and the Apple Podcast app and follow along for more updates. And if you have questions for our upcoming Q&A episode, submit them at joshuasporter.com slash question.